we have an exciting podcast in store for you guys. This week's topic is animal intelligence. Hey everyone, your favorite biologists, Jess, Joe, and Dale here. Today we're going to be discussing one of my favorite topics, animal intelligence. Everyone has wondered whether their cat or dog truly understands what they say to them. Do they plot their bad behavior, or is it merely a result of instincts and circumstance? Is it that the squirrel outside your window is really giving you the side eye? Could apes actually take over the world? We're here to tell you that animals are intelligent, though their intelligence doesn't always resemble what we think of as human IQ. Um, the three of us got together to discuss our individual research on what intelligence is and different forms of intelligence throughout the animal kingdom. Joe, why don't you start us off with some of the definitions of intelligence? For sure, Dale. Um, so there are a couple different ways that people have defined intelligence in dictionaries and in different studies. Um, broadly, uh, Oxford defines intelligence as the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills. Um, Merriam-Webster, on the other hand, uh, defines intelligence as the ability to learn or understand or to deal with new or trying situations. Um, and when I wanted to look up what learn means, I found myself circling back to the Oxford definition, the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills, yada yada. So I believe that there is a distinction between what it means to learn and what it means to apply um, information. The, the latter being the idea of intelligence that I think about, where you're learning information and you're acquiring skills, and in order to have um, an intelligent use of that information, you apply it to new situations, but you're also making good decisions from your perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess there are a couple ways to think about perspective as well, but I would define intelligence broadly as the ability to acquire and apply knowledge and skills in a way in which you're making good decisions from your perspective. It's interesting because a lot of what I know about intelligence studies has looked at learning and tried to make a distinction between instinctual learning and creative learning. So if you compare Pavlov's dog to tool making, where you use creativity to solve problems, does someone want to explain Pavlov's dog? Yeah, I can jump into that. So Pavlov's dog is one of the, I guess, main um, examples of um, conditioning, which is a form of learning. And there are two types of conditioning. There's classical and there's instrumental. To adapt one example that I found online, our parents teach us to stop when we walk up to a street and look both ways before crossing. Initially, in this example, the street is an unconditioned stimulus, and the action of looking both ways is an unconditioned response. However, assuming we listen to our parents as we grow up, we learn to associate seeing a street with being told to look both ways before crossing. While initially a neutral stimulus, the sight of a street is then turned into a conditioned stimulus that elicits a conditioned response of looking both ways before we cross the street. This example of learning important skills as we grow up through classical conditioning kind of shows how powerful of a mode of learning it is. So to go back to Pavlov's dog example, which you initially asked about, Dale, Ivan Pavlov was a Russian physiologist who was studying the digestive system of dogs. He noticed that every time his assistants would come into the room to give the dogs their food, they would start salivating without seeing the food. So he started experimenting by making the dogs listen to the sound of a bell before he fed them. And eventually they learned to associate the conditioned stimulus 
in this case the sound of a bell that originally did not influence the dogs, with the unconditioned stimulus, food, by salivating to the sound of a bell alone. Two things become connected that don't make sense together. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And I, when I think of intelligent animals, for example, pets, let's talk about pets. Pets form people's most complex and intimate experiences with animals. So I think a lot of people who feel compassionate towards animals and feel that animals are intelligent started off caring deeply about a pet. And one thing that makes people think that their pets are intelligent is this sense that they're contemplating. So when we're thinking about instinct or conditioning versus actual learning and planning, the difference is contemplation. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I actually found some really interesting information about how people think about their pets. First of all, 70% of American households have a pet and consider them family, which is pretty funny. Mm -hmm. um, the study even mentioned fur babies <laughs> as one of the ways people think of their pets. Mm -hmm. And the study said that dog owners generally indicated the belief that dogs are socially intelligent and possess the capacity to learn social and general cognitive skills. 45% of dog owners indicated the belief that a dog's mental ability is equivalent to a three to five-year-old human child. And I can't help but think that part of that is the sense that your dog wants something from you and plans how to get it. Your dog understands your inner state and what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Have you guys ever experienced that with a pet? Yes, I think my dog makes quite the fuss when she wants something from us. She'll do a behavior like she'll stretch or she'll nudge us with her, her nose and then she'll lead us to what she wants, um, whether it's her dog food or the backyard. I think she understands that we are available to help her with this and she knows that we are reliable in helping with her. So I, I, I agree. I think my dog knows a bit more about me. I agree with um, the three to five, more of a fur toddler than a fur baby. A toddler for sure. Because they, they do have kind of complex emotions in, in some capacity. Mm -hmm. There's some behaviors that are just kind of hard to understand. Um, this yeah. is a, an odd example, but there, there'll be times where my dog will bark at uh, nothing um, <laughs> and or bark at a specific spot in the room. And I often contemplate if they're seeing something that I'm not or something that I'm just not physically capable of seeing. And if that's just a variation in our individual intelligence as species, mm -hmm. that he's more intelligent in some other capacity that I'm not. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's pretty interesting, I think. It's also a question of, does your dog come and comfort you when you're crying because they know that they're going to get attention when they come over to you when you're crying? Or is it because they general, genuinely care about you and they want to make you feel better? So let's discuss some of the empirically proven indicators of dogs' intelligence in particular. Studies have shown that dogs are capable of learning from humans by observation which is social learning, the same way that babies learn some things about how to be a person. They also understand when humans are paying attention to them and when they're not, which anyone who has a dog, I think that that's very obvious. <laughs> In return, dogs and humans have evolved a kind of understanding of each other, so we can actually understand dogs as well. In one study, they found that even though dogs are obviously incapable of verbally communicating their feelings and cognitions, both children and adults uh, that own dogs were capable of characterizing dog barks solely based on auditory information. So when they were separated by a physical barrier, these adults and children were able to tell what situation their dog was in purely from their barks. So that also was a marker of intelligence if we're thinking of communication. I mean, 
dogs are communicating with us, just not with language. Yeah, for sure. Uh, When I was looking into kind of the history behind animal intelligence and animal cognition, the study itself is very interdisciplinary. So starting with philosophers, into ecologists, into psychologists. It's a it's a very robust kind of science. And in, in the spectrum of psychology, they kind of looked at cognitive stages and compared it to human cognitive stages to see what they could kind of find in uh, different animals, from mammals to fish to birds. And the concept of communication and language comes up, and often it goes towards more of um, biological nature. So looking at things like echolocation, and like the mechanisms behind a, a tail wagging, and the sense of on yeah. a cellular level, what what mechanisms are actually allowing this uh, tail to wag? But I think it's interesting to kind of look at because you're thinking about all those extra cognitive abilities like perception and attention that go into wagging a tail or barking a specific in a specific tone. Right. But yeah, it's really a really complex kind of rich history behind all of this. Something I found really interesting in my process of looking at this is that. Human beings have kind of been looking at and seeing and viewing animal behavior and cognition for such a long time. I found a story out of ancient Greece, actually. Wow. So animal intelligence, but with respect to anthropomorphic stories, um, there was a gentleman Wait. named Aesop. What does anthropomorphic Anthropomorphic. <laughs> it's um, so kind of giving human traits to an animal. Okay. Um, we see it a lot in like television and like media. So like any any Disney Pixar film you've seen, like Zootopia, you give Bugs animal life. traits. Bucks life. <laughs> Same idea. So this this has been kind of an old concept because there was a man named Aesop. He made a series of fables. It was around like six twenty to five ninety BC in which he lived, and all of his fables were um, those kind of anthropomorphic storytellings, but for the sake of telling morals. And we are actually very familiar with one of them. It's the tortoise and the hare. No way. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting because I was like, oh, this is where this comes from. You get told this story to kind of kind of give you a sense of, oh, slow down, Everything, everyone takes everything at their own pace. But Patience. some of his other fables kind of reflected him observing animal behavior in kind of a scientific sense. And the story that I thought was really interesting was the crow in the picture. So he basically observes a crow uh, add pebbles to a pitcher of water until the water rises so he can drink it. And I thought it was a very interesting experience of him viewing an animal understand fluid dynamics. Yeah. You know, because you're like, oh, that's a really that's a really smart thing for Most a crow to do. toddlers don't understand exactly. that, that concept. But yeah, you get to a point where you, you wonder if it's just purely for um, the principles of biology their behavior so Mm -hmm. if it's just for survival growth and like reproduction or if it's external to that and more complex yeah one thing i'll just come in and that's that's a good segue towards the other type of conditioning um other than classical conditioning which is instrumental or operant conditioning and it involves basically instead of having an association with uh initially um neutral stimulus you have a stimulus that is um operated by the strengthening or weakening of a reward or reinforcement or punishment. Um, So in the case of that, the pitcher, you're getting um, a food item out of it. Um, So that is a reward and you reinforce that behavior and you might do that more often and that Mm -hmm. makes the behavior stronger in your head. Um, And essentially trial and error is the essential ingredient here. And the creativity like um, anybody might have in order to look at a new situation and sort of innovate on what might be an original but functional behavior um, is really critical to that operant conditioning. 
Stimuli such as food, water, and loud noises are highly relevant for the survival and safety of the animal, and accordingly tend to attract or repel animals even before any learning takes place. By contrast, learning promotes self-replication of genes because it can expand the range of behaviors beyond those that animals are genetically determined to, to uh, act. Overall, I guess these behaviors learned through classical and instrumental conditioning um, when learned by critical stimuli like food and water um, help the animal accumulate more conditioned stimuli and reinforcers while avoiding punishment um, in their day-to-day -day lives. You know, when I hear that story of the crow, I don't think of conditioning. I think of tool use, mm -hmm. which started, that was one of the first forms of sapient intelligence, right? Yeah. It was the ability to make tools and to make fire. There's so many examples of tool use throughout the animal kingdom. I know an example, I believe it's great blue herons use tools to fish, which is really cool. Um, does, did anyone find any examples of tool use in their research? Yeah, I actually did read exactly about that phenomenon. It's called bait fishing, where uh, green herons will um, use a lure to attract fish. Um, and it has been documented in many types of birds, but the most well-documented bait fishers are the green-backed herons, which um, includes some species like the green heron and the striated heron. So what we know about this behavior is that the green-backed heron will um, acquire random objects from the forest floor, including winged seeds, flowers, even insects, things that they just find lying around. Mm -hmm. And then they'll drop it on top of the water's surface and then uh, seize the fish that are attracted by that. So I think there's two levels of intelligence going on here. There are the fish who are attracted by stimuli, um, and they are interested in investigating those stimuli. And then there are the herons who take advantage of those situations. I think that's a really interesting point, especially because we were talking earlier prior to the podcast, and Dale had mentioned something about octopi and their ability to learn. You want to yeah. talk about that a little bit more? I would love to. <laughs> yeah, so... Something that is inherent in tool creation and use is this ability to think into the future and predict the outcome of your actions, which is not instinctual. Mm -hmm. That, to me, speaks to creat creativity, which I believe is a highly intelligent characteristic. And I believe planning into the future and creativity are both part of this really cool phenomenon that octopi do. I'm not sure if the audience knows this, but octopi can change the color of their skin and the texture sometimes to camouflage. Other uses for their skin changing color is communication, mating, or hunting. So one way that octopi use their skin, how do you say this? Skin. Chromatophores. Yeah, chromatophores are the cells that they use to change the color of their skin. Skin coloration. We'll yeah. just call it skin coloration. One way that octopi use their skin coloration to hunt is this phenomenon called the passing cloud, which is when they mimic a shadow passing over their body in order to scare a prey item that's above them into thinking there's a predator above them to induce the prey item to come closer to them there on the floor. That is a highly intelligent action if you think about the color of a shadow and how the color of a shadow is dependent on the backdrop and how artists spend years trying to master the color of shadows and octopi is born with this ability. 
It also shows creativity in hunting and the ability to predict how a prey will react. That is just the coolest thing ever to me. Yeah, I think this example of octopi using a camouflage effect and changing their skin tone to mimic shadows is really interesting. An intricate example of reasoning and insight. Our traditional understanding of reasoning and insight is using trial and error. So you try something, it fails, and you change your behavior because of it. In the case of the octopi, their behavior works, and so they adopt that behavior in the long term. They're using this concept of kind of causal reasoning. It could be considered an evolutionary trait, but it differs from the camouflage techniques that we've seen before. That was also a great example of kind of looking at problem solving and reasoning in yeah. animals, because there's so many factors that go into to to apply that kind of hunting strategy beyond just having the like physical ability to do it. Yeah. They understand their prey and that what their prey fears as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I came across something in the process of looking at like the cognitive stages and they basically listed a couple of different cognitive stages that they could test animals for. And two of those include problem solving and reasoning, um, but also like insight, which basically, as was mentioned earlier, it's a concept of trial and error. So you try something, it fails, and you change your behavior because of it. In the case of the octopi, their behavior works, and so they adopt that behavior in the long term. They're using this concept of kind of causal reasoning. I think it's really interesting how that also ties into like evolution, yeah. because how how does one learn to do that? That's actually really interesting. When I was researching cephalopods, which is the group that octopi belong to, I found a lot of studies mentioning that cephalopods obviously share a very different evolutionary history from humans. I think our last common ancestor was some sort of worm. <laughs> so it's really a case of parallel evolution of intelligence and... What are the common factors that caused intelligence to arise independently on two separate occasions? One theory was that social animals tend to be more intelligent because they have to communicate with other people in people, (laughs) with other individuals to survive. Did you guys find anything about that? No, not particularly with my research, but I do think it ties into something that I learned in school um, where we looked at animal behaviors, specifically kinship and altruism. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of how do uh, other individuals, whether it be within species or between species, how do they behave um, with respect to altruism and kinship? How do you know who is a part of your grouping and who isn't? Mm -hmm. And how do you know how to act accordingly. Uh, And I thought it was really interesting because we look at things like mutualism and competition. I think we've all seen that. um, I don't remember the name of the bird, but it it helps cleans hippos teeth. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. How does that kind of relationship occur? And what do they learn from one another to make this relationship work? And it's just kind of another idea of like complex emotions. Mm -hmm. Do animals have complex emotions? There's also tons of examples of intelligence in solitary animals like birds. So maybe it's a question of, are social animals just exhibiting an intelligence that we can recognize more readily because our intelligence evolved in a social Mm -hmm. setting? One interesting thing about altruism, and I was reading a bit about that in birds, is that, well, in general, altruistic behavior has been proposed to be an honest signal of general intelligence to other individuals, Um, Because the cost incurred by gauging in unconditional altruism, which just for our listeners is defined as benefiting others at a cost to yourself, um, 
the cost incurred by engaging in this type of altruism is lower for highly intelligent people or individuals than for less intelligent people or individuals, because you may expect to regain the drained resources if you're engaging in altruism in the first place. One example that I was reading about in birds has been to explain the evolution of cooperative breeding in which groups that are normally isolated um, contain these non-breeding helpers at the nest that help the parents raise young, such as by feeding them. Um, and they can even compete to feed the young over which they are not a parent. Um, so this act is altruistic because they are losing or incurring the cost of take, not taking the chance to look for their own mate. Actually, it is uh, reciprocated for when the nestlings grow up, um, they can disperse with this helper bird and help that helper bird uh, raise their young. So it's sort of a, a chain of where um, the helper is always taking a cost, but it is repaid in the future because it turns out evolutionarily the chance that the helper has to mate with the grown-up nestlings might be the best chance of those birds' success to have a um, a reliable breeding opportunity mm -hmm. than if they were in nature going to find their own mate. There is less likelihood that they would be able to to find that in their environment. Yeah, that to me is intelligence. That's planning for the future. For sure. I think another interesting thing that comes out of that uh, kind of concept of altruism is also the concept of memory. I think with birds, it's really interesting because You've probably seen videos of people feeding the same bird over and over again, and that bird remembers to come back to them, whether it be for a stimulus of food. You kind of wonder, is is this bird capable of memory in other capacities as well? Like, remembering where certain food sources are, that's like instinctive in a sense, because that's a, a cause for survival. But when it's something like altruism, do you attach memories to that and remember who's helped you, quote unquote? Hmm. But yeah, yeah, I didn't come across that in my reading, but it's definitely very interesting. <laughs> I'd like to know. Um, birds are able to recognize themselves and other individuals. It might depend on the species, but another test that uh, researchers used to use to determine tests was this test called the Mark test. And it and involves, I think it's also sometimes called the mirror test. It involves placing a subject in front of a mirror and putting a colored mark, like a small spot of dye, onto the subject's body that can be seen um, only through the mirror. The individual is unable to spot it on their own body. And the individual would not be able to feel the spot being um, added onto their body. And if the subject directs its actions towards the mark after being placed in front of the mirror, it is evidence that the subject recognizes itself. This has been shown in a couple different mammalian species like apes, dolphins, and elephants, but even uh, magpies, which is a type of bird closely related to crows and ravens, they showed spontaneous mark-directed behavior. So the fact that they recognize themselves could uh, show that they can recognize other individuals in other situations. Yeah, that kind of speaks to theory of mind. I don't know if you guys learned about theory of mind. I'm speaking on this solely from my first year psychology course in undergrad. <laughs> but theory of mind is the knowledge that other people have a mind like yourself and you have the ability to imagine what someone else might be thinking. That I don't believe has been proven explicitly in animals, though I have to imagine that animals have some sort of theory of mind. I mean, I'm always bringing it back to dogs, but 
dogs understand when we're paying attention to them and when we're not. Is that not theory of mind? I actually did come across another example, but that does feel very fitting yeah. um, with respect to perceiving human beings, but completely external to having human um, human interaction with an animal. I came, with, I came across the example of ravens. Ravens are able to kind of, and maybe this could be also just driven by instinct, but they will hide their food sources in a specific area when they think that other dominant ravens are coming around because they perceive this as a threat. Um, even though they're the same species, which kind of an acute version of the theory of mind, but mm-hmm. interesting that they kind of understand the concept of intent and desire in a different raven than themselves. Yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah, just, just to bring it back to sort of like, how do we know that dogs are thinking about us having emotions versus just reacting towards us? Mm-hmm. And um, we usually think of animal instincts, animal behaviors, if we don't attach um, meaning to them as being intelligent, as just being these hardwired cognitions where they um, are taking a rational behavior, but it is for some irrational reason from the way humans define it. But um, in animal behaviors, we, we define intelligence as the ability to be able to communicate that information in some way that seems rational. Um, and animals, for the most part, are unable to do that. They communicate in non-linguistic fashions, like wagging their tails or jumping up and down. Um, those types of, we should not be um, recognizing or categorizing those types of movements as not being intelligent, when in reality, the internal state of that dog could definitely be the same as that of a human. We have no way to prove it, but based on the behaviors that we have seen, how can we disvalue that? As humans, we tend to like categorizing things to make them easier to understand. We do this with animal behaviors and emotions as well. We try to make these irrational behaviors rational in the way that we understand them by putting them into these categories. So how humans behave and how animals show their own emotions. For example, some researchers were looking at aquatic mammals and published a paper last year on manatee cognition. And in this paper, they highlighted observed play behaviors. Um, some of those included intimate or affectionate behaviors that we do in, in a similar fashion. So manatees actually partake in hugging and kissing. They use their flippers to embrace and nuzzle, and they also align their faces mouth to mouth to make contact. They'll also align their mouths with other parts of the manatee's body in a playful way to give like a little smooch. That is so cute. They also do really interesting play behaviors, which kind of reminded me of being on a playground. So they play a lovely little game of keep away, um, where they'll use their pectoral fins and they'll grab and hold things. And sometimes this includes divers' masks and swim fins. If you're interacting with a manatee, I do not suggest interacting back in that same fashion. Um, (laughs) They also like to hold random objects. So sometimes they'll take a palm frond and they'll just swing it around. And I think the cutest of all is that they engage in friendly, playful behavior with other animals. So they particularly like to engage with sea turtles, riding sea turtles, and also engaging in parallel swimming, so just swimming alongside them. Dale, do you have any thoughts on how humans associate value to animal behavior? I think part of believing in animal intelligence is just believing in it. It's obvious to me, by the way animals interact with us and each other, that they have complex interstates, whether or not this has been scientifically demonstrated. I mean, is that a really romantic and irrational way to think? I think that even if we're thinking romantically, I don't think it's irrational because (laughs) even in the process of kind of looking at this initially when we were just interested in the idea, 
we came across the concepts of like the mirror test, the pointing mm-hmm. test, all these yeah. tests that we can do on animals, um, safe, <laughs> ethical tests that <laughs> yes. we can do on animals to kind of prove intelligence through a human lens of intelligence. One of the giant caveats of all of these studies is that animal intelligence takes different forms. We yeah. saw that for certain aspects and certain senses, intelligence doesn't show in the exact same way. Some animals aren't visually apt, but with other capacities, like, I don't know, the scent, for example, yeah. of a dog. Like, for example, dogs are, uh, they don't see the same spectrum of light that humans do, but their ability to smell a certain thing and ret- retrieve something right. of that scent that we could probably not even make out with our own noses is a sense of a sense of intelligence that we we're just unable to yeah evaluate we're definitely limited in our capability to understand and even comprehend animal intelligence i mean not even animals when i first heard that trees communicate with each other and react to their environments i realized that my understanding of the world was so limited and looking at nature through a human lens what would only restrict me that's i really I feel like part of compassion towards nature and a love for nature and animals comes from an understanding that you can't understand and that they're worthy of respect, just whether or not we understand them. Mm-hmm. I think an overall thing that we can kind of gather out of this is that everything is complex and we have the ability to admire it, so why not? Yeah, everything is worthy of being protected if it exists and it wants to be alive. I think that that's a critical reason why we're talking so much about animal intelligence in an environmental context we we want to be able to both um appreciate the conservation of the natural world but also understand how animals are using the natural world mm-hmm. so we can continue efforts that are being taken to restore and care for these species mm-hmm. as well as understanding the ability of animals to navigate and rely upon their environment because if they're more intelligent then we give them the the understandings or reason to be then we're not capturing the full view of how they navigate the forest or the field for example if we believe that animals are intelligent which i do spoiler alert (laughs) everyone's gathered that i think that conservation becomes more than just animals surviving if we're thinking of intelligent beings they're creative they play they have emotions they care we need to give them the room and the resources to have imagination, to play, to be creative, mm-hmm. to explore new things. You know, it's not just about the orca in a tank at SeaWorld because surviving is not just enough for intelligent beings. Mm-hmm. It, they need to thrive and be happy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It also comments well on that sometimes we may not we may look at an animal and be like, okay, maybe that's not the cutest animal. Right. But you, we, might, we might be only evaluating it on what we see and what, what attracts us, what looks good to us. But we aren't thinking about the cognitive abilities of this animal and how they they're important within their ecosystem, for example, mm-hmm. and being able to thrive. What does that look yeah. like for them? And I think that's another uh, aspect that we can think about when we're thinking about conservation in general. Yes, it might not be the cutest, but what interesting, cool thing could it do? Mm-hmm. Right. And I would say that the ability of species to survive and be intelligent is not separate from uh, human society. There is still opportunities for for animals like birds to survive in this human-modified environment or world that we have and still perform its regular behaviors and find ways to thrive. Um, one example I was reading about was this bird called the Australian bowerbird, which builds a special platform called a bower on the forest floor to lure females as part of its 
court your behavior. It's sort of like a ground nest, and it, but it decorates this with rare objects, such as blue feathers or whatever they can find. But in these days in Australia, where they will build these bowers in parks, um, in places where humans have used them, um, they will use human objects, trash lying around, and they will adorn their bowers with these um, increased, very more colorful plastic objects. Um, and it turns out that these bower birds with um, more fanciful and potentially unnatural objects, um, they are the ones that might experience the most success with mates. Birds are adapting to human-modified environments, and while this may not be ideal, it shows that some animals have the capacity to move beyond their centuries-old instincts to meet the novel hurdles of modern day. It shows that these animals can keep up with us, and we need to keep, mm -hmm. need to keep up conversation. That's very true. If, if anyone out there hasn't seen what bower bird nests look like, please look them up because they are so cool. Very intricate. <laughs> very intricate. Very colorful. Reminiscent of human art, you could say. Mm -hmm. True. Completely. So I think what we've learned is that there's so many different examples of intelligence and there's so many different forms that intelligence can take. I wish everyone would take a second to just understand that we can never fully understand, but also to try and give animals the benefit of the doubt and think about what your experience is like think about what makes you feel good what your inner states are your curiosity your desire to learn and at least look for those characteristics in animals yeah by, by understanding the key stimuli that reinforce critical behaviors for wildlife like foraging and finding shelter and understanding that animals are applying the information that they take from the environment, the same environment that we share with them. This can help practitioners ensure that animals make healthy choices and persist and that we make healthy choices for them. Any concluding remarks, Jess? Everyone should take in, take in a moment and go visit their pets and see how their pets are doing. Look your pet <laughs> in the eye and say... Introduce yourself to your pet. <laughs> Do you know me? Because <laughs> I think I know you. Am I just the feeding machine or do you love me? <laughs> exactly. I think they love us. <laughs> okay. okay, thanks guys. That's us signing off. Bye. Take care. Bye.